Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. My next guest on the Bravery Academy is Jane Guy. Jane is a mother, a blogger, a podcaster, writer, coach, and she's been obsessed with women and their stories for over 20 years, helping work one-on-one in a group setting. Today we talk about those tough moments in life for women, both in business and in relationships, and even in parenting. Morena Jane, welcome to the Bravery Academy. Good morning, Morena, everyone. <laughs> it's, I feel like I've just woken up, but I haven't. I've been awake for hours. <laughs> it feels a bit like that, doesn't it, some days, particularly with all that you're juggling. But before we start that, can you share with me where you're from and where do you live now? Ko Jane Tokoingoa, Ko England, Ireland, Swedish, Jewish, Aho. I am from the UK and I moved here in 2006 with a boyfriend at the time. We came over for two years and then said, we'll go home. And then we never did. And yeah, I've been living in Queenstown for nearly 18 years. So quite a long time. I'm not a local yet, I don't think. I'm not sure what the line is for that. (laughs) Jane, it's so exciting to have you on here and to share a bit about that journey of getting to New Zealand. Why did you come to New Zealand in the first place? So I was a youth worker in the UK and I worked in sexual health. And at the time we were in a, well, they called it a tsunami of chlamydia, which is Hmm. a beautiful way of describing it. Chlamydia had gone up 400% in the UK. Yeah. And I worked in sexual health and teenage pregnancy. I worked in termination services, which I really loved, but it just it was it was so overwhelmingly busy that I and so overwhelmingly sad that I was like, I need a break <laughs> after doing it for about five years. And because, you know, taking 10 year olds for terminations is pretty full on. Well, yeah, it was pretty hardcore. And I loved the work like I worked in schools. I did sexual health um, education in schools and I loved it. I really loved it. And po- where I come from, Rochdale is a really, really poor cotton town. So I just, me and my partner were like, let's go somewhere else and kind of put our finger on the map. 
And we were like, oh, where's New Zealand at the time? So he got a job within like four seconds because he was an engineer. And he is, he's still alive. <laughs> he hasn't died. And so we came, literally within about three weeks, we packed our bags and came over. So I tried to get a job in the same field, but not much investment in kind of teenage youth, young people services in Queenstown. It was more of a push towards kind of the mental health aspect. So I started to work for alternative education, which is all the kids who kind of been pushed aside from school and given an alternative education because the, the current framework of school just wasn't working for them. So I used to drive over to Cromwell four days a week and look after five literally massive boys on my own, which was eye-opening in itself. <laughs> and that was my start of that journey. So how do you get from that point to then doing Queenstown Life, blogging and podcasting, and there's kind of be a big step in the middle of that? Yeah, so after about a year of doing that, I started to work for what was Queenstown Lakes Family Centre, which was one of the first of its kind, really, offering free counselling services and support for people in Queenstown. And I worked there, I, did, I was their group programme coordinator. So I've done group programmes for a long time, probably like 20 years. And I've worked with women one-on-one -on -one for probably the same amount of time, just in different capacities. And then after working for them for a while, my now, who was my boss, but is now kind of my 2IC, kind of came over and whispered in my ear in a meeting, do you want to come and work for family violence? And I was like, not really. Anyway, I did my crisis training, so my 24-hour crisis training, phone training with her and them. And it was a really small service at the time, Wakatipu Abuse Prevention Network, which was, that was what they were. So originally Rape Crisis set up, they've got, they've been around for about 30, 30 years now. And because I'd worked in kind of sexual harm before, it was not a natural transition, but I just realized how much I really loved working in that field as hard as it is and as Everest as it feels. So I've worked on and off for them for probably since about 2007 and I've left five times. <laughs> so I recently went back at the end of last year. And I think it's because you either go into that work, into the social sector and stay in it too long and get really burnt out and actually should have left a long time ago, or you kind of dip in and out of it, which is what I've done. And then about probably, t I think 10 years ago, yeah, 2013, I was really stuck with the fact that I used to, I've got a drama degree and I've oh, I really? kind of, yeah, I did theatre studies at university and so really mainly focused on writing and set design and all that kind of stuff. But as soon as I came out, everyone was like, what are you going to do? Are you going to become a drama teacher? And that was, it was either you went into drama teaching or you went and worked in the theatre and I didn't want to do either. So I was just like, I don't want to do either of these. So I kind of put it on the shelf for a little bit. And then I was constantly racking my brains for something creative to do here because back then, Queenstown, as you know, is a very outdoorsy place. And I am an outdoorsy person. I run, I bike, I swim, I ski, I, all that stuff. But the creative aspect of what I got from the UK wasn't being fulfilled here. Because mm. back then there was just, there wasn't that much. It's, I mean, it's so different now. But that aspect of me wasn't being fulfilled. And so a friend of mine who is a blogger and has been a blogger for a long time in London said, why don't you start writing a blog? Like nobody is doing blogging, but people don't know what it is. There was no such thing as influencers. Instagram was very young, all that stuff. So 
I literally just started writing about businesses in Queenstown and was faced, literally faced with every single door I asked. Why would you promote my business on a blog? Like people just did not get it at all. It was very new. And so I just grew what I was doing very slowly, very frustratingly. I hit a lot of roadblocks and I left my job and went full time. And then after a while, it was just too difficult, which I can talk about the whole not like charging people $50 for a blog post and all that kind of stuff. But I then I went back to my other job. Then in the meantime, I split up with my partner and went and did a personal training qualification and worked in a shoe shop and then worked in a <laughs> therapist, like totally random, and was doing my blog alongside it, like getting up at five o'clock in the morning and doing it. And just worked my ass off doing it because I loved it. And then it just got too difficult, wasn't earning any money, went back to my family violence job. And then in 2020 was kind of doing my blog, but obviously COVID hit. So nobody was spending literally zero dollars on marketing this country because everything shut down. I went and did a kind of like a blogging social media course. And I I went on that course and I had a massive revelation where I was like, at the end of it, you know, they do the kind of the upsell at the end of the course and say, come and do this bigger course with a coach and spend all this money. And I said to my husband, this is actually something that's come in front of my face I have to do. Mm. And I either spend all this money on it. It was a lot of money. It was like 10, 15 grand. And that was a lot of money. And it still is a lot of money. And I said, I either do this now or I shut down my business and I never do it again. And it's literally the thing that completely changed everything. Absolutely changed everything. So 2020 came, shut down my blog, cried watched Netflix for two weeks and then hooked up again with my coach. And she's like, you can still do this. Absolutely. You can still do this. You just need a plan. And I did. And I probably had the best two years of that business. Yeah. So I, I got to a point where I was like, so I'm 44 now. I, I, do you get to that point where you have to think, oh, I am I now? You kind of forget. I got to like f- probably about 41 and I was like, this influencing, like you know, I was earning really good money. I was, I was really busy. I was flying here, there, and everywhere, staying in lovely hotels, and and like on the outside of it, everyone was like, "Oh my god, I'd love to do what you're doing." And I never ever discount, discredit the work that I was doing. Like I loved it, but I was just like, there was a gnawing feeling in me, probably for a while, that I I had a family and I didn't want to be flying and traveling here, there, and everywhere. I didn't want like. Honestly, cr- content creators do not stop working. It is twenty four seven. That you know those videos and the like. I could not do that work anymore. And I just said, I I can't do this work anymore. I just I want it to evolve into something that I really truly love again. And so, in the meantime of kind of stopping doing Queenstown Life, I met my then like after that business partner Jen. And we kind of hit the market really well because we were just coming out of lockdown and businesses were, everybody set up a Facebook page, I remember, like everybody, new Facebook pages were appearing all over the place. But people were still not handling social media well. It was like, how people were still asking, how do I do this? And so we started to run social media courses that just used to sell out really quickly because people just wanted knowledge. And then we were like, we're onto something here, let's you know, she's got this strategy mind and I had this kind of 
coaching mind. Let's put it together and start creating group programs. And we did that for like two, about two or three years where we did long-term kind of three, four, six-month group programs plus one-on-one. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. And after three years, we were in a place where we were like, she wanted to go traveling and do online courses. And I really didn't. And I really wanted to keep going with coaching. And we very healthily, literally the healthiest relationship I've still got, where we just said, let's not do it. Let's just stop doing it. And we were like, like, we can do this. And people instantly were like, oh my God, have you fallen out? And I was like, no, it's probably the most honest business relationship I've ever been in, where we constantly talked about how we felt and what we were doing, whether or not it was the things we want, which when you're, I suppose when you're in a business and a lot of people are entrepreneurs or businesses on their own, they don't have that other person to be like, how does this feel? So women especially do not check in with what is going on internally for them. You know, like we talked about your podcast of a situation for you. Do not check in with, is this the thing that I want or am I just doing it because everybody else is doing it? And so that relationship came to an end and I then had to start working out. And I'd done this very quite slowly. How I then take my Queenstown mountain loving shop loving audience to a coaching audience Uh, how did I do that like how do I transition those people over and I very quickly got brave and used to people are gonna leave you yep they're gonna leave and that is all right and I think I dropped like Instagram's not it's I mean it's a huge following for me and it's a big part of the work I do but it's not the only platform but as an example like Dropped like 4,000 followers in a few months. And I was like, this is great. Instead of thinking this is awful, like this is great because the people who are staying actually want what I am now selling. Hmm. So never think that just because, I talk a lot about this with women, never think because of what you don't want to do anymore, there's not ever going to be anybody who doesn't want that. They absolutely will. But you have to be honest with yourself about the things that you are selling serving putting out there and whether or not after years of doing it it's still who you want to be because we change and evolve i'm not 24 anymore thank god (laughs) and so every time i put out a thing there was a little voice inside that said to me this isn't who you are why are you doing this still yeah it's hard to listen into that and it's hard to listen to it when you're not in a good space, right? And what I think is interesting from your background, which is super unique to be doing the coaching process is you've come from this trauma-informed area working with women and men, obviously. What are the lessons from working in that family violence and, and all the, the years of working through with the supporting women through their journeys of like learning to listen in? What are the big lessons from that that's then weaved into this next career? I suppose the biggest thing that, kind of shines for me is creating safe spaces and I did that me and Jen used to talk about that with our business like the opportunity for women to feel very safe because until you feel safe Maslow basic you know stuff you don't share so you're not vulnerable so you might be selling these big especially for coaches selling these big group programs all these big online courses but unless those people feel safe to share their vulnerabilities with you you're never going to get that feedback from them. And so very quickly, I had to work out what does a safe space actually mean? Well, one, that's me sharing about the stuff that I have been through, gone through, 
I'm still going through. It's not perfect ever, never will be. But also the ability to understand that. When I used to do teaching around child protection for teachers, the first thing I used to say was, always consider what have people come from? What have your kids in your class come from? So they might have come from at 9 a.m., sit down, ready for the day to start. They might have come from not sleeping at all because dad got up and got pissed off, came home drunk. Mum, you know, there was no food in the fridge. They've not had breakfast or dinner. They've slept in a bed with their three sisters and, you know, one of their sisters has wet the bed. So they've not slept all night. They've got up, not had breakfast. They've got dirty clothes on. They've not been clean. They've not had a shower. They've been cold all night. And then they've come and they've been expected to start a day where their minds are on. So I always think about that when women come to me or whoever does in a space, what have they come from? So have they come from an argument? You know, they've had an argument with their kids or there's been no food in the fridge for breakfast. So they've not eaten. So they've given their kids the food or whatever. But always consider when you sit in that Zoom room, what has somebody come from before they've sat down? And I think just that ability to allow women to, to, for me to say to women, you've invested in this space with me. You've put your money into trusting that I will give you the time and the space to talk about business or whatever it is, because it's not always, it's never always just business. Never business, is it? Never just business. (laughs) Well, this is also your time. So you dictate how this time goes. And actually it's one hour or however long that you can kind of put all the stuff that's going on for you and that you've just come from just to the left or the right, just for a minute. And just allow yourself the grace, you know, we talked about grace, to have that space to just be able to be messy and scrappy and dream massively big, regardless of all the other stuff that's going on, that you're then going to leave my Zoom room and get on with all the other stuff that you're juggling, the shopping, the washing, the kids, the da 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 So I just think that communicating that to whoever your audience is, whether it's 10 people on Facebook or whatever, LinkedIn or whatever, being able to communicate how you do that and how you sell what you're selling, because we're all selling stuff. How do you do that well? That makes you very human and very person-centered. And I think that safety for me is, is the biggest thing. And also to allow women to know that Whatever sector you're in, we're not perfect. We can be messy and business should be. It should be really, really frigging messy because you don't learn anything by it going. Imagine if your business was like, oh, I've just made a million dollars in four seconds. It was awesome. You'd be like, oh, a bit bored now. Like, what do I do now? So I just I just think allowing that space to be really messy. And the feedback that's come from that is women saying, you know, like it's a kind of a big sigh of relief. It's like, oh, my God, these sessions are just my ability to be able to just go. Bleh. Why not men? Why not men? Not all men. Hashtag. You know what? I did. I gave a coaching session to my man friend last week. He's going through some stuff and it was awesome. It was actually awesome. I don't know. I, I think because I've worked with women for so long and I absolutely am completely and utterly obsessed with women, like completely and utterly. And I just, I've always said, I think we get this a lot when I do, we do lots of work with women and sometimes a pushback as, as to why women. And I always say, unless we create safe spaces for women first, we actually can't do the work that comes after that. Women are always second 
I went on a walk yesterday. Me and my husband were talking about the patriarchy. And I was like, it literally feeds into everything we do. Everything. Like this trail we're walking on is because of the patriarchy. Because some man has decided in a meeting that this is where this hiking trail is going to be. He's decided where the signs are going to be. And yeah, women might be a part of that decision making. But they've also been born within that system. So then their thinking is because of that system. So I think until I am satisfied that I've given enough time for women to have the opportunities to say, to dream, to do, then I will, I want to do that first. So I'll probably wait and <laughs> You're waiting a lot. You're not. You're not changing. Don't worry. But the, the reason I ask that and say that as well is because I have a, a real lean towards work, working with women as well. And so people think that I just work with women, but I do have men that I work with one-on-one coaching. But some of the most favorite things that I do is the women's retreats because yeah. the depth that comes and for women to come there and to be able to like slowly unravel these parts of them and go. I haven't experienced what it feels like to be safe around other women in the first place because they may have had conflict with women in the past or not felt secure in, in their family upbringings with women. And then I, I look at in the group trainings that I do too, like the women's groups, and it just slowly unfolds and they go, I just couldn't have done it with the men in the room. And it doesn't mean that men don't need that support as well. It's just that I think it's a seeing this need. There's a huge need in an in imbalance right now of the way that we're talking about this and how we look at empowering women isn't actually a one-size-fits-all. It's got to be about listening. It's the empathy and the compassion that you're talking about. Yeah, and it's so like I, it's so delicious when you see women start to like unfurl, you oh. know, like an onion, the layers start coming off. And I actually think women have been working with men for men for so long. Men actually need to start talking to other men. Yeah. You know, my husband also says, how can I have these conversations? And I said, you know, there are instances where we're in we're in a bar or we're in a friend's house and a man will say something and then later I'm like, why didn't you say anything? And he's like, well, either I didn't notice or I didn't have the words so quick. You don't have to have a plan, but you all you can say is, hey, that's not all right. Or dude, like, why would you say that? And women have been doing that, I think, to other women for a long time. We've been, you know, having these conversations. And I say, I also said, we have this theory that women talk about everything. We do not. We talk about, you know, I, I like to say the tampons and kittens conversation. Um, you know, we, we talk about that stuff, but we do not talk about being messy. We don't talk about rage. We don't talk about being angry or violent or, you know, hating being mums or we don't have those conversations. We're just now having started to have those conversations. So I think men need to step up a little bit more and start to say, Hey, that sounds like it's really hard or wow, that, that was a really big thing you just said. And that's all it can be. It can be really simple. It doesn't have to be, dude, you don't have to get into this confrontational, yes, hardcore, scary place. You can just say, wow, that's a really big statement you just said. Just like you would say to kids, wow, that statement is, you know, and they say something that's maybe quite shocking as a parent. Just saying, hey, wow, that sounds like a really big thing you just said. Let's, let's look at that a little bit more. That's all you need to do. That's it's giving it space. Need. I think that, that ability to actually just pause and think when people get into that shock of, of hearing something or going, I don't know how to support a person, the biggest act, and as I know you do it all the time, but it's the act of listening. It's about creating connection. 
And connection doesn't come from a, a just a, a drink every so often with somebody. It, it doesn't come from playing sport with them. It comes from learning to listen in. And I had that. I've had a dear friend staying with me and her husband and her kids for the last uh, five days. And the evening conversations where we've just sat down, and particularly when we went through and we talked about emotions, was really powerful around how hard it is for a lot of us to actually have these discussions, to feel good enough to say these things. And it's that conditioning. It's like you said, it's where people have come from. And if we don't honor that past history and that story and know that God, they don't have the tools themselves, no, none of us have this toolbox. None of us have got it perfect. And yet we are just internally beating ourselves up constantly, constantly. Constantly. And I think, like you said, having these conversations about emotions around kids is also really important. And saying, you know, I find this really hard or I just really lost my shit at you this morning and I'm really sorry. And that was because, you know, in the therapeutic world, that whole rupture and repair, I really love that concept. You've really ruptured a, a, a relationship, whether it's your partner or your mom or your kid, but you go in and you repair it as hard as that is. Every single time you make time to slow it down, to stop, and as soon as possible say, hey, I did that completely a way that I really didn't want to, and I'm really sorry. And kids go, whoa, like that's massive. And, we, and usually they go, it's all right. And you're like, oh, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, they put a hand on your shoulder. You feel yeah. this little hand and you're like, you shouldn't carry the weight of the stuff that I do. But they know, they really know that you've messed up, but you've gone, that was not all right. And I'm really sorry. And it wasn't your fault. The fact that I lost it was not your fault. That's mine to deal with. We're having really good conversations at the minute. Actually, my six-year-old Nia is, is always like, you made me. And I said, no, I didn't make you. These emotions in your body are yours and you deal with them however you can deal with them. And they're not there to be, you know, often controlled. Yes, I can say, no, you can't have ice cream for dinner and that might make the tears come. That's all right. But I don't make you angry. Like, that's not my job. Your job is to look at why that happened. And she's just already at six. She's like, oh, hmm, damn it. It's actually interesting because I've been, I do a lot of work around emotional regulation and discussions and emotions because as, as a stress and, and resilience coach, that's actually one of the biggest triggers is how we deal with them as humans. And like you said, it's, this concept or understanding that we can control only us. The way that we show up will impact others. So if you can see that you can shift the way that you are noticing the emotions, that you can see the body language, the breathing, all the elements that are going to trigger you into not feeling good, if you can figure out how to deal with your own toolbox and, and emo regulate your emotions, it's going to help you move through the day and deal with those unpleasant situations, unpleasant emotions. And yeah. we're not given that. No, we're not. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our 
lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. If I'm talking to somebody about the work that they're doing, I love that statement and it's really difficult. That whole thing of what somebody else thinks of me is none of my business. Yep. Like, and, they, and people always say, yeah, but, and I said, yeah, no, you, you're a human being at the end of the day. You're going to get upset and hurt by how people see you. But you, you're also getting upset and hurt by people you don't even know. So you don't even know if you've got like a thousand followers, 999, because one of them is your mum. You know, I'm like, three of them are my sister and my mum and my cousins and my friends. But actually, the most part, I do not know these people. So we're actually getting upset and really focusing in on how other people see us who don't even know us. And that's only something that's going to get bigger and more deep for people. The more we're online, the more you know, more that world gets faster and faster and faster and more people see stuff, we are going to have to start really looking at how we regulate, how we feel about how other people see us. I do not want everybody to like me because I'd be doing my job not very well if everybody liked everything I said. And it's not my job to, yeah, to make everybody like me. It's it's box, really right? not. You don't have it's to fit exhausting. In the box. It yeah. is exhausting. And I'm sure you get that. Like these people who come to you exhausted with the weight of, well, what do you think I should do with this? And well, they're doing that. And it's like, oh my God, you're carrying this around in your bag on your back forever. What do you want? Most people don't know. And I think that's too big a, a question to answer. So I try and really break it down and get people to look at really small, tiny bites of an apple. Like what is the smallest, tiniest thing you can do right now that is worthy of your time? But like, you know, what do you want? What are your goals? How, what do you want in 10 years? Like they're massive, massive questions we ask ourselves. Yeah. And just no way. And some people just try to put one foot in front of the other and just go, I just need to get to lunchtime to figure out how I deal with that, especially if they're in a trauma state. I haven't even space. brushed my teeth yet, Emma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Can't smell it. What from here. time are we on? I've not even done that yet. <laughs> one thing that I have been wanting to have in this conversation with you is the vulnerability around parenting. As a mother myself of two, it is one of the hardest roles that I've had. And I know that there's elements of it that. I think you're so brave with around talking about it, the honesty around what it's meant to you with this journey. Can you share what your experience has been? I wrote about it was birth trauma awareness week last week, which I didn't even know was a thing, like amazing. But um, I think back to when we started to talk about babies and I, I've never been and I don't know if you use the term like natural mother, because what even does that mean? But when I think back to I never thought 
really deeply about wanting to have kids. I It did go through my mind. And the question somebody always said to me was, would you ever regret it if you didn't have one later in life? And I'm like, how can you answer that? Because I can't see into the future. Exactly. So I just, we we decided we got married very quickly. And then, and I never saw myself as a meet someone, get married, have a baby kind of girl. My mom's like, ooh, traditional. I was like, shut up. Miss Feminist, all traditional. And then within a year, I was pregnant. And we we actually started to go down the fertility route because we tried. And I was 37, I think, when I started trying to have a baby. And then actually at the fertility meeting, I laugh now because I was actually pregnant and didn't know. So maybe like they should have done a pregnancy test while I was there because that would have saved me a couple of hundred dollars. Yeah. Got pregnant, had a really, you know, good pregnancy whatever that means quite you know ran biked all that stuff felt pretty good and then my baby was induced at 37 nearly 38 weeks we went down to Invercargill so my midwife wasn't with me and that week was honestly I'm still working through it was just horrendous it was awful I I had 15 midwives in a week we ended up saying Niku because she had jaundice and put under the little blue lights and she was teeny tiny and just, I remember me and my husband sat, kind of sat in a room saying to each other, when will the nice midwife be here? Like, when will somebody just come in and say, doing a really good job? I hated breastfeeding, hated it because it was so hard. She was so tiny. I just couldn't latch. I had loads of milk. So like, I was pumping like a crazy woman. I could have sold it. And my days were literally just spent pumping, getting up, feeding, going back to sleep, getting up, doing that. And so when I finally got home, it was like I had to start all over again. My midwife was like, let's start this all over again because you've had a really horrible time. And I, I went back to work after two weeks. I, I opened up my laptop and I was working for myself at the time. And I think I just, I was working for the family violence place, but I took six months off. And so after two weeks, I was like, I'm kind of, I'm bored. I want something else to do. So what can I do? So I started like writing again and taking photographs and just taking my baby out and going snapping stuff with my camera and I just, I love work. Like I love it. And I, I've really moved away from the needing to do everything for whatever reason, ego, proving myself. Like I've been through a lot of stuff with my therapist around why I need to do. And I probably do hardly anything that I used to do. God, I'd be setting groups up every week years ago. But I just, I love work and I love the conversations I have and the adults that I'm around. And I just said, if I can't have this as part of what I'm doing, I will sink. I think I had postnatal depression. I'm not like it was never clarified, but I just really struggled with the baby phase. I did not like the baby phase at all. I was just bored. I was like, this is boring. I want the running around and coloring in and dancing and the taking me skiing and all that stuff. So I probably spent a lot of time wishing I was further on than I did. And I'm like, now I look back and I'm like, just it does go so fast. It really does go so fast. And yet it's so slow at the time. You know, those being awake when it's dawn and you just like, I've just got to get through the night. Oh my God. So if anyone's listening to this and has a newborn and it's, you know, first time or whatever, honestly, it's, the, it's so hard. It's, hard. It's, it's just so hard and lonely. And lonely. yet you've got all these people around, but it's so lonely. It's just so lonely. So I really utilized my mum friends massively. Like I reached out to them constantly and I was like, oh, this is really awful. 
And from that moment, I probably was very honest from then, like going back to your original conversation, by saying things like online, quite like people were quite shocked. I was like, this is boring. Like, I'm bored. And they're like, what? It's a baby. And I'm like, yeah, but they're boring. And like, yeah, they're cute and all that stuff. But I, I was just honest about how hard it was. And the breastfeeding part was, I was so, in so much agony. I used to like claw my feet together before I'd get her on because it was oh. so sore, I know, and count down. It was horrible. And I remember going, I went to my GP after about 10 weeks and I said, I cannot. What am I doing? She's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, why have you not taken formula? And I was like, nobody talked about formula. And she's like, well, that's a disgrace. Absolutely but this disgrace. is only, what, how many years? How old's Ren now? Like, that's not. She's nearly six. So it's not long ago before not long. No. people, it's not. And so you think about how many women are still suffering in oh, that my stage God. of I just know. feeling so lonely, so, so judged oh honestly i i remember going into my auntie we did it back then there was two antenatal classes and they were like quite a long time like a couple of hours and we went to the first one and there's a point where they take you for a tour around the labor suite in queenstown which is tiny because it's not a massive hospital and i said in front of all the women like they they siphon off the men which is just i think Mm. bizarre i said to the midwife so when we go to hospital do we bring our own formula in if we need it or do the does the hospital supply it do i need to get ready and she said to me, I cannot answer that question in front of the other. Oh. And there was probably about eight women in there. And I, I remember a shift of the women, like they moved away from her and kind of came into a group. It was awesome. We were like witches, like we came to this <laughs> coven. And I said, I'm going to ask you that question again. Do we bring in our own formula? And she said, I cannot answer that question. Wow. And everyone was like, what is this? So I was, I was like put off from then on and then the next week was another antenatal and me and Trent were like I ain't going to this like we late it's gonna come out baby's gonna come out whatever happens so let's go and eat we went and ate food we did a food tour of Queenstown for the whole day like we went and ate as much food as we could and it was just the questions that women were asking were so vulnerable and just were not being answered we know domestic violence massively spikes when women first have their babies because the focus is not on their partners anymore. So we see a huge rise, which is why we kind of get midwives to circle and plunk it as much as possible, to circle these women more than they kind of normally would because they need to keep an eye on that situation around those relationships. And just these questions were not being answered. Then uh, probably a year later, actually had a conversation with Plunkett about coming in and talking about family violence in those spaces. Mm. And they were like, it's never going to happen. Wow. Like, we're not going to talk about it. There's a real disparity between what the World Health Organization talks about and the nursing, whatever, fraternity, community, and they massively clash, particularly around the conversation of formula, because it's not allowed to be promoted as a thing. Like, we do this whole fed is best it's bullshit like it's it, yeah. you know it's it's really still not that and we just put women in a really crappy horrible first situation that sets them on a journey throughout the rest of the time so then baby phase went by and i remember talking about the being vulnerable and i'm going to do some stuff around mum rage because i i interviewed minna dubbin who is a new york times journalist a couple of years ago and she's written a book now about mum rage And I read her article in the New York Times about the kind of the monster that lives in our bodies as mums and we don't talk about it. And I was like, somebody else feels the same way as me. 
And I remember the first time my rage, I liken it to this little thing that lives in my throat. It leapt out of my mouth and I kind of snarled at my kid. I lost it and shouted at her for a second. And I was like, who is that? Like, who was that? That's not me. And I've never, ever seen that before. And so it really scared me into actually, one, having a conversation with my therapist because I was like, I need to work out what this is. But then start to do lots of reading and talking to other women. And this is the bit about the stuff that women don't talk about because you kind of, you know, when you're testing new friends who are around and you're like, what can I say and what can I not say? So you're like, so do you like, you know, do you ever get ratty with your children? And some of them are like, oh, God, yeah, you know, like, and then I apologize. And then the the kind of the sliding to felt that little. A lot of women who I've said it to have gone, I don't know what you're talking about. The thing about the pressure that we are under to raise a human and do all the other stuff. And this whole thing that we've set up women to fail around, women can have it all. It's bullshit. Like, bullshit. I'm calling it bullshit. It's total bullshit. We cannot do everything, nor should we be expected to. And it just means that we can't be messy, imperfect, look like we've been dragged through hedges, you know, like we just can't. We're expected to shove up with our hair done and our teeth brushed. Teeth brushed and our boobs perky and, <laughs> you know, it's like... Everything flat in the right everything. place. Everything. Well, it's not like, everything perky oh flat. Oh, my God, God. That yeah, it's there's the a real, weight of it. There's a real wisdom, isn't it, though, through these stages as women. I was talking to one of our guests, Dr. Stacey Sim, about this from the body point of view and how, you know, learning to listen into our body's intuition, cycles of it. Like, we, there's so much that we're influenced by as women that men just don't experience this physical shifts. One of the reasons why this is so important to me to talk about is I remember listening to Gabo Mate's newest book, The Myth of Normal. And one of the stats that stuck with me so dramatically was that 80% of autoimmune disease is in women. There is nothing from a genetic point of view that we should be so high with that. And what it comes down to is our ability to control emotions or to suppress emotions and repress them. Don't even know what we're doing half the time and not having these safe places, which is why that's so important. And so especially in those times when you are going through the hardest, darkest night of your life, where you are lonely, where you feel isolated, where you feel like there is nobody going through this the same way and you're beating yourself up for being the worst mother. This is when we should be having our tribe around us. And we are not creating tribes. We are losing our tribes. And that is making it so much harder for us as women to go, I can express myself and be okay. And that just ripples out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We're expected to go home and sit in these little boxes and just, you know, raise kids and <laughs> not let them near open flames. <laughs> just, it, it is it, insa- like literally insanity. You know, like that whole, what is it, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We just, we just can't. And I, I do think that the conversation is starting to shift. I don't know if you've, have you seen Dope Sick? It's on Disney. We just started to watch about the opioid crisis and basically looks at where OxyContin came from and the family that set it up. And I said, you know, I watched those things and by the end of it, I'm obviously more ragey than I ever was before. But I, I just think I, I, that's the time when I actually think, how can this ever change when there are 
these families who are literally in charge of everything, everything we put our hands on. There are only a few families that are in charge of. And how can that ever change? Because they're untouchable. They are literally untouchable. We can never underestimate the power of grassroots, like the power of that little, the little things that you can do for each other around supporting each other and asking each other and having hard conversations um, and just being ugly, being really ugly and being allowed to show the ugly sides of each other to each other. I'm sure if, you know, if people who listen to this think about the ugly sides that they've shown to their partner, you probably have shown a, a tenth of the ugly side of yourself to your partner. The person that you hopefully are in a relationship that you want to be in because you actually quite like that person. But most of them we haven't shown. We started to have some really hard conversations when we'd had a kid because I said to at the very start, before we even started the process, we actually had that conversation that I really always say people should have about, well, what happens if she wants her ears pierced or wants to get a tattoo when she's, you know, six or, or, or wants to go and do that thing or you want her to do that and I don't agree in that or she has a conversation that's really hard at school. You know, I, I said to Trent, she's a girl. Unfortunately, something horrible is going to happen to her at some point in her life. I think it does. And that's all it's awful to think about. But it will. And if you have a boy, there's a there's an opportunity, not necessarily that they will do something, but they will be around somebody who does something horrible to another woman. So where do we have these conversations together? And we've had some real like hard conversations with each other about how we feel about certain things that we've got, you know, we've got pretty ragey about with each other. And we've had to say, we need to talk about this another day because this is just too hard. But I said, I want to have these because if I can't have them with you about a human that we've made, then who can I have them with? Even though they're really hard. But yeah, that was a tough one. That was a really tough one, especially for him with having a girl. He's been faced and confronted with all these conversations. And I'm like, you need to. You absolutely need to have these with yourself. But I know I, I know she's going to be faced with it. She has come home with conversations like very early on has said, you know, so-and-so said that boys can't have eyelashes. And I was like, mm, OK. And that's the start of that conversation. You can't have eyelashes because you, you can't be pretty as a boy. So when I dug a little bit deeper, it was like, do you realize why we have eyelashes? Because if you're in the desert, <laughs> the whole sand situation, when you're on the beach, and she's like, well, that'd be stupid if they didn't. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So we try and turn it into like a science conversation, and then she gets it. Like we've had the pronouns talk with her. We've got books we talk about. Oh, my God, we did Anne Frank the other week, which was quite hardcore. But we have all the conversations and I, I started to show her, we found some really amazing drag Instagram accounts and we sat down and looked at pictures and she's just been like, why can't everybody just be pretty like that all the time? Like they just see the purity in people. They really do. But it shifts. There's a point where they get like the innocence is there and they get to that seven, eight, nine, ten, and suddenly this them to conform and you're like oh no don't lose that i know i know but i think we are the people that, that can then on the outset continue to have the conversations about who they want to be yep. so 
I don't know if you know Emily Wrights, who's an amazing writer online. And she wrote a post once about her son. And he used to wear all his rainbow outfits and tutus when he came home. And then at the night before the term started, he, she found him and he used to put them in a suitcase and lock the suitcase and put it under his bed. And she's like, why are you putting these away? And he's like, well, I go to school. I have to lock that part of me away. And I was like, oh, my God. But then she's like, well, no, no, actually, we need to talk about you. One, yes, keeping yourself safe in a situation, but also the fact that you can be whoever you want to be. And you, you have to navigate some of these situations yourself. So how do we tool you up with the ways in which when you are on your own, you can say what you need and say how you want it to go? But man, honestly, I would not want to be at school right now. Jeez, Louise. The social, the, all the things that oh, come along with it. Good Lord. With this, is there regrets in this process of parenting or is there pressure for people as well? Like the society thing, oh, well, you've got one. Why is it in there too? Like all the things that people say around it. Oh, yeah. Like within like two weeks, somebody said to me, when are you having another one? And I think <laughs> I gave them the F off, like very sharpish. And I think the women responding to that get mad like you can get ragey when somebody talks about your body like it's yeah. my womb what are you talking about i have talked about if i went back would i have kids and i, I don't know if i would going back i mean you know and i don't even have to say i love her dearly because i do she's flipping amazing <laughs> and hilarious but i i don't know if i i would but then i also think the women i've met the mums i've met through this journey have been amazing and also, I wouldn't be on the path that I'm on now if I exactly. I'm an exact. Regrets are just, I think they're a bit, not useless. I think the thing for me is to say to women, it's all right to actually sit and think about how your life could have been. That's all right. Just allow yourself to think about that and be sad and grieve the person you were before. Like, that's all right. And you different. can still, that doesn't have to be done in five minutes. You can absolutely grieve that life you had before. We were very independent people. You know, we traveled a lot. We did whatever we wanted. And it is hard. But I think a rule that me and my partner have now is if we can't do something, we try as much as possible to allow each other to do the things we really want to do and say, I really want to go and do that. But if we can't, we have to just let it go. Let it go. Do not sit and be angry about it. Like go off and be angry and then come back because you can't. One, blame that on her. It's not her fault. But you just have to let it go. Like, it's gone. It's done. That event you wanted to go to, it'll come up again. Yeah. You know, you just can't. It's a time of life. Time of life and it changes. My kids are older than yours and that shift of independence is so beautiful. They get themselves ready. They go out the door. They walk themselves to school. You're just like... They get a job. Oh, not there yet, but working on it. It's a nice They make me a good flat white. I'm yeah. waiting for that. <laughs> I am waiting how do you put your own oxygen mask on? As with all the all the hats that you're wearing and doing and giving, how do you actually make sure that you're charged up? Well, I've stopped drinking because I used to think that that was my oxygen mask and it wasn't or isn't. How does that feel? It feels amazing. I had a little little nice glass of red last night. We took a random day off yesterday, which is part of the oxygen mask. I think I did dry July last year and just kept going. And at six months, and I was like, I feel amazing. And I think I'd got into a massive cycle, like lots of us during lockdown, of just drinking every day. And I just couldn't get out of it. And it was that four o'clock thing. I cook, I drink, 
probably two glasses. But still, even now, the older you get, the one glass of wine, I wake up and go, like, I had like a glass of wine last night and I woke up this morning and was like, ooh. I live yeah. with a person who hardly drinks, so it's yeah. not like an excuse for me or a reason for me or, a you know, like a block for me to be like, oh, I live with someone, it's really difficult. And I'm not surrounded, like, we don't go out lots anyway. But going back to being like doing my, when I wrote my blog and going to lots of events, you really notice the amount this town drinks. We live in a town that drinks Side, well, society, all right? the all around the yeah. world. Though. All around Constantly the world. just booze, 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 booze. And I felt amazing. It was funny because I went to an event, which was like a beer and something match event. And I wasn't drinking and somebody was like, oh, you first thing they ask, what is it? Are you pregnant? And I was like, why do I have to be with child to not drink to one? oh, do you not like the taste of beer? I'm like, yeah, but I just don't want to drink. You saw that look on their face like, what? I don't get that. So I kept it going and then I had a gin and tonic after about six months that was probably the best gin and tonic I've ever had. It was amazing. And then I was like, do you know what? I'm kind of done with this. So I randomly have a drink if I want. But the thing I think I do that is the oxygen mask is I, I say to myself before, do I really want this or is this just because I've had a bad day and my brain automatically goes, I'm just going to go home and have a drink. So I try and slow it down a little bit. A thing that I learned with my coach years ago was to put my self-care exercise in first. So on a Sunday night, I've done it for years, I sit down and look at my week and I plot in the gym, the runs, the trips out. I put that in first and then I orchestrate my meetings and my everything else. So it's a non-negotiable unless it's, you know, my child gets sick, damn it. And that has been a complete game changer. Then I hear it lots. Oh, I missed that yoga class again. And it's like, was it in your calendar? No. If it ain't in your calendar, women, people, men, whoever, it ain't happening. If it's in your head, it's not happening. We have this thing that we do at the start of a weekend on a Friday where we get a whiteboard out and we write our expectations of the weekend. So one thing that we each want to do, we each get one. And as much as possible, we try and do it. So for me, it might be, I want to go to the gym on my own this week and have a coffee. Trent's might be, I want to go for a ride. Ren might be, I want to go swimming. And we try as much as possible to get through it because expectations and the lovely Brene talks about this a lot, Brene Brown. We have the biggest part of our family arguments, our expectations of each other, but we never communicate them to Mm -hmm. each other. We just sit there. And we do a lot of this at work where, we do, where we're doing communication styles and we talk to each other about communication skills. But there is that sector of people who sit and wish things happen and they think it's just going to come along and happen. And it's like you have to fight for your cause. Nobody's going to come along and deliver you a spa treatment this weekend, unfortunately. And so you have to state what you need. And if you don't know what you need, then do that step before what you need is asking what you want to feel. So how do I want to feel about the end of this weekend or this launch that I'm doing or whatever? And then you can actually communicate that around to your families. And if I'm going through a launch or something like that, or I'm putting something new out or I'm doing something pretty heavy at work, it's saying these next two weeks, I am not available for a lot of things. But after that, I'm back. But actually, can you pick up the slack for this? Or people who, you know, solo parent asking friends, hey, is there a couple of times this week you can just pick up my kid for 30 minutes while I just get this thing done? Or can I nip to the gym and just do a whatever? Just ask, like really ask. Because I think we don't. We try and again, 
juggle it all. And then we end up getting to the end of the week and being really angry because we haven't got the things done that we wanted. But it's like, you didn't tell anyone, didn't actually ask. So yeah, that's, that is a big thing for me. Being alone is massive for me. And if I don't get energy topped up by being alone, I get really mad. (laughs) I'm not very helpful because I just, I love being around people. But at the end of the day, my husband goes, who are we having around for dinner? And I'm like, no one. I hate old people. (laughs) I don't want to see any humans for the next 48 hours. Thanks very much. What's bravery mean to you? Bravery is probably the art of being, I don't like to use the word selfish, but being really selfish, self-reflective, choosing you, putting yourself first, investing in yourself. That's bravery for me. And probably like a big thing I'm talking about at the minute is quitting, being able to quit stuff, just saying, don't want to do that anymore, actually. Don't like it. (laughs) Don't want to do it. It's not for me anymore. Just really listening to yourself. That's bravery for me. I love your honesty. Like we said, that builds that courage and vulnerability for others. So appreciate all that you share, all the work that you do. And if people want to get to know what you do, how do they find out where you are? I am Queenstown Life on everything and queenstownlife.com. And you'll find me running down a trail, (laughs) swearing somewhere near you soon. Thank you, Jane. I really appreciate your time and wisdom. Thank you. It's been amazing. It's been really awesome. Thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level, visit patreon.com forward slash the Bravery Academy to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes. Your feedback means the world to us. So please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being part of the Bravery Academy community. Stay brave, stay curious, and keep challenging yourself to grow. Until next time.